Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are you a scholar, journalist, or writer focused on Palestine? Contribute to the foremost journal on the past, present, and future of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Quarterly is soliciting articles for peer review, essays, and letters from Jerusalem. Send your work to jq at palestine-studies.org or see palestine-studies.org forward slash journals for more info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today is with great pleasure that my guest is Ramzi Khan Khan. Ramzi has come to America from Palestine in his teens, and he had experienced firsthand both the Israeli occupation of Palestine, but also the immigrant journey and rebuilding life anew, like many of the listeners, including myself. Now, in his former career, he was a physics professor uh, noted for his computer models that describe and predict complexity in nature. I wish he could also predict uh, a solution to uh, the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, better say, the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Anyway, nowadays you can find him in, on a jogging trail, deep in the forest, at an airport, or in a coffee shop. All hobbies that I actually share too. Ramsey holds a PhD in engineering from the University of Michigan. However, we're not going to talk about physics, not engineering. In fact, we're going to talk about his new book, Fugitive Dreams, Chronicles of Occupation and Resistance, published by Formai, and it's just been published here in 2022. Ramsey, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. Um for inviting me and for reading the book and also for this wonderful podcast. I watched your uh, last one with Ilan Pape. 
And it was, I learned a lot from listening. Thank you. Now, the first question I want to ask is, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your background? I mean, obviously you're a, uh, an engineer, and uh, I'm curious, how did you write, uh, well, better than how, why did you write a book about uh, Palestine and Chronicle of Resistance? Well, um, I was born in Jerusalem in 1973. So back then the occupation was already there. I, I was born under occupation. I lived in Ramallah. Around 1990, I came to study in Michigan because the schools there were closed as a result of the Intifada. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, so eventually I ended up um, becoming a U.S. citizen. But despite that, when I go back to Palestine, I am still subjected to the same restrictions on Palestinians from the West Bank. So you could say that, in a sense, I experienced the occupation my entire life, almost 50 years old. And um, so back in 2019, just before COVID, um, I was visiting and my brother took my nine-year-old daughter and myself on a drive from Ramallah to Nablus. The roads in the West Bank, as you know, are segregated. Uh, but this short stretch of road at the entrance to Nablus was shared by Palestinians and by settlers. And as a result, um, on the sidewalk, periodically you saw um, embankments containing Israeli soldiers. Um, and then we passed a few children that were my daughter's age, 9, 10, 11. They were playing with a bicycle. Little further down, you had Israeli soldiers at the military post, and they had their guns trained at the children. Uh, that's a revolting scene that's not new to me. I, having grown up there, um, I had a gun pointed at me twice before I was even 15. And here we are, 40 years later, year 2022, and it's still going on. You have, um, you know, soldiers pointing guns at children. And I, I decided this is it. I got to tell the story. I got to tell the rest of the world what is going on there and how absurd that situation is. Now, um, you have a question? Yeah, and I should mention that uh, as we speak right now and we're recording this podcast, there are troubling events occurring in Jerusalem, uh, not certainly promising, uh, given the fact that Israeli authorities have blocked a number of Palestinian neighborhoods, including uh, old refugee camps that have been around for more than 70 years. Uh, and so, yeah, you're right. I mean, th these stories are important to be told because, you know, just browsing uh, mainstream media, they may uh, talk about it briefly, but often what they're reporting is very superficial and certainly lacking depth. And uh, more importantly, they, they always portray only one side of a story and not the other one. And right. talking about story, I really want to ask you about uh, the book itself. Now, this is a work of partial fiction. And, uh, and I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the process. How did you come up with the idea of... Uh, you know, a character that we're going to discuss later, um, but also, you know, 
th this fictional character is embedded into a, the story in the history of Palestine and the conflict between Israeli and Palestinians? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, originally, the book I started writing in 1993. I was on my first trip back to Palestine after studying in, uh, in America. And that was also the time of the signing of the Oslo Accords. So there was this promise of peace over there in the Middle East. And I wanted to witness those changes. I wanted to see what's going on. So I took a diary and I started writing every day what I encountered over the summer. And every successive trip, I kept up taking diaries and those diaries piled up. But I was working full time in science, so I had no time to write a book. Until, you know, my daughter was born in 2010 and I had some free time and I wanted to write something for her and I wanted something different. I, I read a lot of books about Palestine, historical books, political books, and they all miss something. Um, they focus a lot on the death tolls, on the political agreements, on the um, international law and UN resolutions and stuff like that. But among that, the story that's lost is the story of the ordinary person, the individual, especially children. How does it feel to be born, to grow up, to live under a military occupation? How do you cope? Um, what are the hopes and dreams of the occupied? And when I start thinking like that, um, you know, fictional, very little is fictional. I'll tell you right off the bat, the names changed. Um, I changed some personal and identifying details. It's partly to protect the identity of others, but it's also because I felt that the personal lives of the characters are of a lesser interest here. Um, in a way, the protagonist is not Samir, but Palestine. Um, what is reality or what I made sure is as accurate as possible is the historical events. Um, most things I describe in the book are actually eyewitness based on my own experiences. Uh, where that's not available, I usually attribute the source. I or Samir read this in Haaretz or watched it on Al Jazeera or heard rumors or so on. Um, the most challenging part to write was the part about the second intifada in chapters 13 and 14, because I was not there to witness it myself. I was in America, and what I have in the book is reconstructed from published eyewitness sources. I, I tried to create some, some narrative that's authentic, but parts of it are imagined. You already mentioned the main character, Samir. So I wanted to ask uh, something about him. Uh, let's start with him, right? Who is he? Who is Samir? And to what extent does he represent uh, a Palestinian? Um, Samir uh, begins life as a little child in Palestine, born in Jerusalem to a Palestinian Christian family. What he learns about Palestine, he learns by observation of 
everything that's going on around him. He doesn't learn formally about Palestine because the word itself is censored from his school books. So throughout his life, he's just seeking a normal life. He wants to be a kid. He wants to play. Um, he goes to study, etc. He's trying to carry on despite this constant stream of events that are happening beyond his control. Um, in, in this sense, Samir could be thought of as any Palestinian, even though he's not average or typical by any means. For example, his family is better off than most financially, but um, I wanted that because it shows that, you know, that family wealth doesn't buy much in terms of security or freedom. He's as facing the same dangers and the same restrictions that anyone else in occupied Palestine is facing. Um, his advanced college degree doesn't exempt him from any of that either. He's still treated the same way at the borders and so on. I'm curious about uh, something more personal. How does Samir relate to your life and experience? Without giving away too much, but I'm really curious to, to what extent it reflects also your personal life. Um, let's say that his story is based on my own journey very closely. Uh, it's almost an autobiography, but I decided to, you know, the, the, the story that's more interesting to me was the story of Palestine through his life, rather than, you know, if I made a book saying, here's the story of Ramsey Hanhan, no one would buy it because I'm unknown. But, um, People are interested in Palestine's story. So in, in that sense, both Samir and all the other characters in the book are simplified cartoonish versions um, where their story is intertwines with the story of Palestine that's highlighted, but other dimensions that have no connection to Palestine are stripped uh, from them. We I don't write too much about the science that he was doing or... Um, his love affairs or, you know, why he got married, why he gets divorced, etc. Well, I, I will ask a few things about him. Uh, and I think this is interesting. The fact that you are highlighting how this is a book about Palestine, but also let me say that uh, the book comes up, comes out as a, you know, a book that you can read in two ways. Uh, at least for me, there was also the personal element, perhaps because I, I work on a, you know, the history of the region, specifically on Palestine. So, you know, I knew the background and I was like thirsty for, you know, the kind of uh, human stories. But I also understand that, as you, you pointed out earlier, that this is a book uh, also providing the background and, you know, where Samir is sort of experiencing and living his life. Uh, and so that the readers may also get more information about that. And so I think this is a very important aspect of your book, which I really enjoyed, you know, the fact that you can read it in two different ways. So let me ask something about uh, one of the first chapters of the book. Uh, there is, a, you know, an image which I found fascinating because uh, um, several other guests of the podcast who were born... Uh, you know, between the 1960s and 70s, they all experienced this kind of, uh, you know, event driving from somewhere, 
from the West Bank, often from Ramallah, into Jerusalem and experiencing, you know, the city in different ways, whether it was the Jordanian Jerusalem or the, the city that had been then taken over by Israeli troops uh, after the war of uh, 67. So Samir is driving to Jerusalem. Can you tell us about this experience? Okay. Um, a slight correction. Samir himself could never drive to Jerusalem. That could never have happened because he left Palestine when he was 16 and the driving age is 18, so he couldn't drive. He would ride with his parents, for example, take their own car. And I write about how occasionally they would encounter a checkpoint. And then the soldiers at the checkpoint had absolute power as far as he's concerned. They could let them go or turn them back or stop them and search the car. And so he had that relationship with those checkpoints, even from the time he was very young. By the time he came back from the USA, he had a driver's license, but now the checkpoints had become permanent. And he needed a permit to cross them and go to Jerusalem, even though it was only, the city was only 10 miles away from his home in Ramallah. And even if he got that permit, he could not no longer use his own car. He had to rely on public transportation, taxis, shared rides, buses. So, and, and in fact, more often than not, when he was visiting, he did not have the permit. And so sometimes he traveled to Jerusalem smuggled. And I actually have a poem in the book, if you like me to read it. Please. Uh, it's um, called Smuggled. It, it describes the path of one of those journeys, almost like a treasure map, uh, the secret route that he would take from Ramallah to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, 10 miles south of Ramallah. We first headed north through Birzeit to the deserted Transylvanian guard tower. A dirt road from there joined with the Israeli road, taking us east, then south, speeding in between stolen mints, Bethel, Afra, Rimonim. We reached the village of Anata, northeast of Jerusalem. Anathoth in the Bible. From Anat, Canaanite goddess of fertility. We ducked before an Israeli checkpoint into the adjacent refugee camp through a maze of tiny alleys to the back of the car dealership on the main road, straddling the second checkpoint. I hopped over the fence. The lot attendant offered me Arabic coffee. Thanking him, I sipped while waiting as the car retraced its path through the labyrinth, down at the checkpoint, and over to pick me up. An hour and a half after leaving Ramallah, I was 10 miles south in the old city of Jerusalem. On its streets, I was wary, tiptoeing through side alleys, avoiding soldiers, one ID check away from three nights in an Israeli jail. We walked the old city wall. It was fenced off. The ticketed entrance at Damascus Gate where soldiers checked IDs. So I climbed the fence at a remote city gate, a thief in my birthplace, or a pirate following a treasure map. 
Seems all we do in that land is climb over fences to get to places that formerly welcomed everyone, places accessible, unfenced, unwalled. I must thank you for this because, and I'm very much aware that most of the listeners of the podcast are very familiar with the, you know, the question of checkpoints and the difficulties of crossing borders for Palestinians, particularly traveling from the West Bank, but also, you know, the other way around. But there are also as many uh, people that don't really have a sense of how difficult it is to travel those 10 miles, those like 15 kilometers. You know, you can catch a bus number 18 from uh, East Jerusalem and it may take uh, 30 minutes, one hour, one hour and a half. You never know. And the same is true on the other way around. You know, if you're lucky and you can get a, a taxi uh, with a license to go across, maybe a little bit easier. But again, it's there's no real freedom of movement. And, and this is something that a lot of people don't really, I don't want to say understand in a negative way, but they cannot perceive, like, how is that possible, right? That these two major centers are not really communicating with each other, despite the fact they're only 10 miles, 10 miles apart. Especially in America, when you can travel so freely to go anywhere and, you know, from here to California or Florida or wherever. Exactly. Now, let me let me go on and ask a few other questions about, sure. about the book. So Samir is a traveler. He travels certainly uh, around the, the States, where he's also obviously educated and he lives. Uh, and he moved to, but he also goes back to Palestine. And I was wondering, how does this relate uh, to being a Palestinian? This idea of uh, moving, traveling, uh, you know, feeling stateless, uh, asking for documents. Uh, how does this relate to a sort of a general uh, figure of a Palestinian? Um, Palestinians and travel are almost married, <laughs> one would say. Um, if you look at Samir's parents. He's the son of refugees. Um, his parents were among the majority of Palestinians that in 1948 were forced from their homes. And his parents lived along the coast in the cities of Ramle and Yaffa. They're now, you know, occupied within greater Tel Aviv, in, you know, enclosed. And, but they were forced to leave those homes and go to the hills in the West Bank. Uh, that's a story he retells in chapter four. Now, his parents resettled in Ramallah and started anew, but the conflict followed them. So Israel invaded the West Bank in 1967, started the occupation that is continuing to this day. And 20 years later, um, Samir is going to school, but... The Intifada started. It's a uprising against Israeli rule. And in response, Israel closed the schools and universities in the West Bank. So he was without an education for some time. Um, and as a result, many of his generation, those who could afford it, traveled abroad to complete their education. Some went to Jordan, some went to Europe, uh, the US, Egypt. So by then, 1990s, you have a Palestinian diaspora that spread all over the world in every country. You could find Palestinians. 
uh, as a traveler, he's constantly crossing borders, and those borders remind him of this country that he does not have. Uh, first time he enters the United States, as you mentioned, he was forced to declare stateless uh, for his nationality. And then at international airports, um, he could see American and European passport holders whizzing through, but he and other Palestinians are made to wait, sometimes for hours, even in Tel Aviv airport, if he's going back home to visit his own, um, his own place. So, um, and even if he became a U.S. citizen and got a, an American passport, that does not help him because the American passport would have a place of birth, Jerusalem. I end up calling it uh, the stigma in the book. It's a stigma of, of being born in Jerusalem. You can't get rid of it. So uh, uh, like you say, the book covers a lot of journeys, but the one that interests me uh, most, and uh, I discussed that in more detail in the last part of the book, is his own personal journey of growth as a human being. There's another short story that kind of caught my attention. And I must say that uh, very much because it's related to a teddy bear, uh, one of the favorite of my children and perhaps of, of your daughter too, Paddington. Um, and, and I really feel like, I really want to ask uh, Ramsey about it. Can you tell us more about uh, this, this short story? Why did it make it uh, into the book? What does this story really tell us? Um, Paddington is the tiny bear that he had as a baby, and he, somehow he kept it throughout the years. So when uh, Samir decided to stay in America, he was in his mid-twenties, he was, had a comfortable job there. Um, so he, visiting Palestine in 99, he decides to bring this old bear with him. And it's tattered, it's, it's worn out. So the night before the flight, his mom patches holes in the bear's hands and feet and um, puts it in the suitcase. Well, when he gets to the airport, he gets to go to the Arab room where Palestinians are searched very thoroughly. And the Israeli guard there is alerted at the fresh stitches. She's like, these stitches are very fresh. We cannot, are you hiding something inside it? He's like, no. Uh, so, but she insists on undoing those stitches because it's her job to thoroughly search every item in every suitcase that lands in front of her. And she's going by the rule book. He pleads for his bear. It's just an old bear. You know, my mom did this to it yesterday and... He suggested that she takes it to get x-rayed instead. She hesitates. You know, she has a bus to worry about and a, she has to follow the rules. But in the end, um, she's convinced she doesn't undo the stitches. She sends the bear over to get x-rayed. So what's interesting is that he succeeds in connecting with her at a human level, enough to convince her to, to spare the bear. Uh, originally, I included this story as an example of how ridiculously thorough those border searches are. 
But it's also the kind of incident that gives me hope. Uh, people seeing the humanity of the other side, relating to each other more as individuals than as actors in assigned roles of you know border guard and suspect Palestinian. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I found it an amazing story. Like, uh, I saw a lot of uh, sort of different kind of readings. And as you said, there was like, there is the human side to it, which I, I, I you know, sort of, uh, I thought about it too. I mean, obviously, as a traveler to to Palestine and Israel, many times I've been searched to, mostly because of you know they can see the publications and so the connections, the fact that I you know work for the Jerusalem Quarterly, therefore a Palestinian institution. But obviously, it's also true that I never go through the same kind of uh, search and in-depth you know sort of uh, uh, scrutiny. Uh, so that that story caught my attention because I really like. Really, I mean, a teddy bear, I don't know. If it, it felt like uh, this is like the extreme, right? And also questioning why it was patched, which also represents, at least to me, this idea of patching someone's identity and life, you know, given all of the travels and the moves and the different sad stories. And the other story I want to ask about is very much about the Intifada. You already mentioned that... Uh, you know, this is something that you had to research because you didn't experience it uh, firsthand. The and second so, intifada. Yes, and I wanted to ask the you about... The first one is uh, firsthand. 
Ah, okay, perfect. Yeah. Good. So let's talk about the first intifada here first. What was the experience of Samir? Uh, when it started, um, Samir was a child. His main concerns are riding his bicycle with his friends and, you know, school and school trips and girls. And, you know, he's a 12, he's a 13-year-old, maybe 14. Uh, so when the Intifada started, he didn't want to get involved in the uprising. He is cautious, um, but he observes everything and he watches his brothers and his peers beaten. Some go to prison, some get deported. Um, schools are closed. So he spends a lot of time at home. He has time to read, but his parents want him to continue his education and he finds various ways he could get around it. He does some independent study at home. Uh, he meets secretly with his classmates against Israeli orders to close the schools. And he's struggling to do this. Um, and then there's this one incident that happens where, you know, he sits down to study and then his friends, um, Jawad and Danny, his best buddies, come to ask him to play with them on the bicycle. And having just sat down to study, he says, no, I'll catch up with you later. And it turns out because of this split-second decision, he escaped the fate that um, befell them. Uh, you know, one of them basically ended up being beaten by an Israeli patrol and the other on the wanted list for pretty much doing nothing. And thinking about that incident, he was terrified because it could have been me. It, you know, whatever happened to his friends, that could have been him. And he started withdrawing, um, isolating himself, not going outside um, as much until his parents decide to send him to uh, the United States to Michigan to um, continue his education. So he now moves to Michigan. Can you tell us a little bit about his uh, life in America and also his travels back to Palestine? Why did he decide to go back? Yeah, so... By the time he moves to Michigan, he's 16 years old. Um, I would say a 16-year-old adult because the years of the Intifada made him mature very quickly. And um, he writes at, at that portion of his life, he's very interested in contrasting the United States with Palestine, his American friends with his Palestinian friends, trying to find a place for himself to fit in uh, somewhere. But in the back of his mind, he's feeling guilty about leaving his Palestinian friends behind. Um, the way he writes it, you know, I have no scars to bear. Um, he didn't get beaten or end up in jail like m many of his friends. And so he carries some guilt for that. Nevertheless, he does well in college. He gets involved in activist groups. Um, but ultimately, he wants to visit because he misses his country. And 1993 is when 
the Oslo peace process was starting. And there was a lot of hope, a lot of optimism uh, there. And he was hopeful that he could go back and start a life there and um, uh, conditions would improve. Eventually, there would be a free Palestinian state within five years, as was supposed to happen with Oslo. Uh, so he came back to Palestine full of hope. And even though he was visiting frequently in the 90s and, um, you know, he was hopeful that at the end of his studies, he would really resettle back in Palestine. And I'm curious about the 1990s. I mean, certainly Samir does represent uh, uh, the ideas and the hopes of many Palestinians back then. So how does he experience those years, and particularly how did then uh, react to the fact that at some point it became quite clear that uh, those hopes were not uh, going to turn into reality? Yeah, um, this is where his scientist background comes in, because he wants peace just like everyone else, but as a scientist, he's trained to be skeptical. And you see that skepticism in that portion of the book. He's rather critical. Um, he read the agreement himself, so he knows, and he knows the facts. He knows what's going on. When he goes on trips around the West Bank, he sees the settlements. They're as entrenched as ever. Um, turns on the TV, watches this charade of peace talks and negotiations, but then any short trip outside of Ramallah, he sees borders rising, checkpoints isolating him from Jerusalem, uh, difficulties of travel. So he becomes cynical. He's frustrated both with the proponents of the negotiations because they're dragging their feet so much, but also with the extremists who are actively sabotaging those talks. And extremists, I mean both you know, Hamas and the Israeli extremists, uh, who do what they could uh, actually almost in league to try to sabotage this peace process. So early 2000s, he's in America. He's just married and He's keeping an eye from far away, you know, watching news about what's happening in Palestine. And all he could see is the breakdown of the peace process. Things are not working. No agreement is being reached. And instead, um, there's fighting that's provoked by Sharon's entry into the mosque. And that started a second intifada. And during that time, he was very tense because he's in USA. He does not get immediate news. He has to rely on the media. And he was highly concerned about the safety of his parents who were still in Palestine and his friends. But at the same time, he could do nothing about it. He is concerned that taxes he pays to the U.S. government are going to fund uh, Israel and give it weapons that are used against his loved ones. But again, he can do nothing about it. And then 911 strikes 
September 11 attack on the U.S. And now you have a whole bunch of complexities opening up. His own fear of further attacks on America, uh, the experience of being a suspect minority, the American wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And subsequently, you have a wall rising in Palestine, which makes him even more disillusioned about peace. So you could describe the 2000s as a period of disillusionment, growing disillusionment and uh, destruction of hope. Um, That's a good question because um, Samir tries his best to see people as individual human beings, regardless of labels. And that's possible. Perhaps, you know, he succeeds because he's in USA where he could meet uh, Israelis and former Israelis in, uh, through his work, for example, or through other occasions and get to know them as people. And they get to know him as, you know, a human being. But the other thing is he's old enough to remember a time when he knew Israelis by name, friendly ones that did business with his parents and sometimes visited each other in, this is the 70s and the 80s. Um, with the checkpoints that came up in the 1990s and now with the wall, he notes that you have a whole generation of Palestinians that grew up having never set foot in Jerusalem, they know Israelis only as soldiers or settlers. And similarly, a whole generation of Israelis know Palestinians only through their military service maintaining that occupation. So in his mind, that is the problem. Peace involves the lowering of barriers, not the raising them. And so if we're ever going to have peace, we need to make Israelis and Palestinians talk to each other, not separate them completely. And because that's when you separate people, then you start substituting negative images for the other side, which might have no bearing to reality. And it's this constant contact between people that... Uh, keeps them in check and, and keeps their views of the other realistic. Um, I think, you know, his first impression of Americans uh, is that they're highly misinformed about anything outside of America's borders. A few actually have traveled abroad and few know, you know, world history is not taught as much as American history here. And 
world events are not covered in the news as much as you know local events. So he struggles with that misinformation. Um, and especially the Israeli narrative is more out here in America than the Palestinian narrative. Uh, and so in, in a sense, that's one of the rationales behind this book is to try to correct this imbalance, to try to just say what's it like to be growing up in Palestine and um, just from a human point of view. Um, that's a complex question. I actually, I didn't put too many reasons in the book for the divorce. I, I just say they got divorced and, and I think, uh, my assessment is that, you know, the divorce would have happened for personal reasons that are unrelated to Palestine. Uh, you know, like Samir says in the book, you cannot blame the Israelis for everything. But at the same time, his life, um, for a huge number of reasons that are discussed in the first part of the book, he has difficulties uh, relating to women. You know, part of it is segregation in the schools, uh, through middle school. You know, he went to a boys' school. He didn't know how to talk to girls. Uh, you know, the harassments at the borders by Israeli soldiers could have had something to do with it, for all I know. But it becomes shaky to try to draw a, you know, a, cause, a causal relationship in something like this. Just, what happened, happened. They divorced and everybody moved in their own way. This is um, the vision that I would like to see. You know, here in America, we have people from many backgrounds and many cultures come together and live together and work together and be productive. And usually it's peaceful. Um, you know, America is becoming more divided and we all complain about that. But in reality, it's much better situation than what we have in the Middle East with all those borders and the constant uh, fighting that goes on. And so I dream of a country for all its citizens. Everybody could live as equals, uh, have an equal justice system, live in peace, travel anywhere you want, live anywhere you want, visit any place in Jerusalem that you like um, and 
when I tell that to people, their first reaction is, oh, this is too idealistic. This would never happen. And what I say is we can't allow ourselves to think like that because if we start thinking that it's never going to happen, then it will never happen. We have to really believe. Uh, we have to have hope. And I don't have hope in the governments. The governments are there to maintain their own power. So where I see this coming to fruition is by individual Palestinians and Israelis coming together, making small changes in their lives, uh, growing personally, empowering themselves, leaving victimhood behind, uh, and most importantly, talking to each other. Because when we uh, talk to each other, we could solve problems. And there are a lot of common problems besides the conflict. For example, um, I talk about that a lot in the last part of the book. Uh, look at the land of Palestine, Israel, whatever you might want to call it. The land itself is neglected. It's destroyed by being fought over by the population race. Um, you look at the West Bank now, or, or even places like Tel Aviv, the, it's, it's an environmental disaster. You have less trees, uh, wildlife is fragmented because of the walls and everything else. Uh, water sources are depleted and overtaxed. Um, construction is sprawled everywhere, noise, pollutions, hills disfigured. So, you know, both people claim they love the land and that's why they're fighting over it. And while they do that, they're destroying the land that they claim they love. Um, that's just a paradox. And what I'm saying is if we really love the land, let's go fix it. Let's work together. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think, um, you know, the politics comes and goes, but ultimately what's important is that people have a decent life, decent lives, and uh, the conflict is just making that impossible. And so I made a choice to put people above political concepts. You know, having a Palestinian state with a flag, well, that's nice. But if it's not going to change reality from what it is, it's not important. Um, I would say probably I cut out about 30% of the first draft of the book. I removed a lot of political parts. And uh, maybe when I was younger, I was more interested in that. But as a father who has a child who wants to see a better future for his child. I don't care about political theories anymore than, you know, just having a, a reality that is respectful of people's right to live their life in peace.
Oh boy. <laughs> Samir is uh, more at peace with himself. Um, he's writing other books. And um, he continues to work on himself. As he says in the book, growth is the one process that ought to never end. Personal growth. Um, he witnessed the Gaza bombings, of course, in May of last year and in August of this year. Uh, but he decided that no addendum is needed because little has changed. You know, wars on Gaza and the siege, that's in chapter 17. Discontent among Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, chapter 12. Confiscation of Palestinian homes in Sheikh Jarrah, chapter 18. Um, Palestinian education uh, hurdles in Jerusalem, chapter 15. It's all there. And the big question that hasn't changed is how much longer is this occupation going to continue? Generations were made to suffer it. How many more children? And I'm talking about both Palestinian children and Israeli children. How many more children are going to repeat this story, repeat this cycle? Um, you know, you go on Twitter anytime this week and there's pictures of Palestinian uh, kids who were uh, killed by Israeli fire and there's uh, pictures of Israeli soldiers, 18-year-old kids, nevertheless, who were put in uniform and sent to the West Bank to maintain the occupation. And they also got hurt. And it's time to say enough is enough. Let's put a stop to this situation that's um, unnatural and unhealthy, and we can replace it with something much better where we are all on the same side uh, working together. Thank you, Roberto. Do I have it, uh, time for one more brief reading from the book? Thank you. I want to leave you with this passage. Uh, this is in 2015 when he goes back to Palestine with his five-year-old daughter, Xenia. The closest we got to Jerusalem yet was the hill at Ramallah's outskirt where I took Xenia to see it from above the wall. She asked to visit the city. I explained that the Israelis, whom she had encountered at the bridge, blocked us from going there. That night, before bedtime, she approached me, whispering something. I leaned in and asked her to repeat it. She whispered again, with eyes as wide as when I told her about seeing a fox on the trail. Tell me more about the Israelis. I immediately understood the weight of my undertaking. Her attitude toward them will be shaped by mine. Not only what I tell her, but what tone I use and how I behave. Am I angry or fearful? Vengeful, perhaps? Apathetic? Ignorant? I wanted to tell her the truth but how to stop its bloodied shadow from staining the course of her life. For it is her future, 
that is foremost in my mind. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.